visited Gigi, we rode all the furniture bareback, the sofas barren of cushions, the futonic kayak of popsicle sticks. Mama and I have pointy butts. Maybe it hurt too much to sit in Gigi's house to visit her again. Gigi is my grandma's sister, though she says she's too young to be grand anything, and if she's grand, we can call her after a movie star. Gigi sent me long letters that Mama opened before I did. She passed the envelopes to me, cut and canined, and that's how I thought letters were supposed to be delivered, half-chewed by the people you loved, their saliva sweetening the words first. While most of my aunties attached magazine clippings of motorcycle accidents that may have skewered my father or a sliver of phone numbers plump with fortuitous sixes to bless our week, Gigi wrote her letters on the magazine, ballpoint bubbling between spreads of geese hopscotched between burning skies and celebrities who went begging for more. Mama says you can avoid suffering if you never beg, never kneel to the gods on TV, who never aged, never changed. Gigi always addressed the envelope to Xing. Little heart, I thought of you reading about these poisonous frogs. You used to beg me to buy you frog gummies, tangerine and sour apple, keep them safe on your tongue. They never stayed in your pockets, remember? You made me stitch extra frog pockets onto your dresses. Here is a coupon for Crayolas. I want you to hold the colors. Draw me your secrets. I ask Mama if it's true, if Gigi knit my dresses, and she says no, no, I bought all your clothes. Little heart, Gigi writes on Mother's Day, Remember when I sunned your butt cheeks until the diaper rash left? Remember when I took you to see girls ride goats until they were bucked off? You wondered how they held on so tightly with nothing but their bare hands, held on even after the timer sounded off a record. Mama says both of us must have been dreaming, 
Gigi never took me to see goats. Mama won't use the coupon. Buys a 64-pack and a sketch pad with pages as soft as milk pudding without telling me how. That night, when we watch palace dramas, the TV is shrunk to a small black cat. The static furred, the lines yowled through the speakers. After we watch the queen behead a painter for giving her son a nose as endowed as a radish, I open my new sketchbook, choose my crayons as carefully as chess pieces. After I finish, my knuckles are glitter-blued, and some of my crayons lost their spines. I lick a stamp to send the drawing to Gigi. Mama shakes her head at the Scooby-Doo stamp, says Gigi doesn't have kids because she still is one. I put my hands in my pockets, feeling for some luck I can seal in the envelope. But there is nothing except a ribbon of Kroger coupons Mama abandoned. The next morning, someone has beheaded the sun, its rays sweating the sidewalks. On our lawn, there are goats and sour apple frogs leaping over each other. They come inside, chew the futon and sofa until there are only plastic bones left. Mama and I sit, hoarding our letters until they stick to our elbows like wings. I reach down into my pockets, but they have disappeared into milk-white goose down, my feet as firm and blooded as tangerine skin. I kneel in front of Mama, a princess on the TV behind me, raising her ribbon sleeves to do the same, our arms carving a well from the sky through which we lower our filial heads. We beg our mothers to let us love without her help.
that was Low Fills with Saw the Day. Bone Ache. This was published at Smoke Long. The only jewelry my mother ever gave me was a pearl necklace. The rest was stolen during an argument. My parents didn't hear the burglar evict the screen door from its frame, or when they stripped my mother's dressers clean as fishbones. My mother tells me if someone loves me very, very much, they will cauterize my wounds with gold. My grandfather had six sisters. Every morning, his sisters brought him milk, crushed with pearls and eggs, still warm with chicken shit. He wrote poetry on rice paper while his sisters made clothes, the skin on their fingers growing as tart and durable as dried plums. When the Japanese came, he ducked to Hong Kong and never came back. His sisters pasted ash on their faces, undid their hair into a waving black fuzz. They learned to spit between their teeth, prayed the soldiers would never arrive on their doorstep asking for ripe fruit. Even when they had nothing to swallow but tree bark and lockets they once wore, they did not send for my grandfather. When my mother was born, they carried her in the air for every piss, made sure horseflies never fastened onto her skin. They fed her American newspapers and glass bottles of milk with cream buckled on top. When she could win all their cigarettes in a game of poker, they sent her across the sea to my grandfather with gifts. Lined what jewelry they had left in their skirts, wove curses onto her tongue. My grandfather stopped her from unraveling both, asking only for a gold cross. He made her promise to search for Yasu in America before he bought her another ticket. It took many years for me to realize that Jesus had a Chinese name. My mother holds my wrists, showing me with her flesh how thick the bracelets were, how I could have had fat jade pulsing against my veins. She teaches me how to say grace in Chinese. My tongue hardens into rock sugar that refuses to dissolve. My grandfather doesn't care what language I speak. Cracks pig bones with his teeth for me to suck the marrow clean. Lets me stand in the streets of Shanghai and call a taxi. He takes me to see the tigers in the zoo, who only open their eyes when they bring rabbits, plump and dreaming. They crack into pulp as easily as fruit. My grandfather passes me a rosary, tells me to pray to Yasu that I will not forget the value of hunger. That day he buys me a gold pendant studded with a single garnet like a bead of blood. I come home wearing it on my chest like a new scar. My mother tells me that real gold is soft enough to bend with your teeth, so I coil the pearls she gave me back in her palm. When she turns away, I place my grandfather's chain between my teeth.
That was Low Fills with Ancestors, Secret Skin by Star Sue. This was published at Waxwing. We're the granddaughters of a fox. Popo said the fox spirit followed no reason, missed one sister, but hounded the next generation. Upon giving birth to my sister Leah, Mama tried to drown her in a plastic basin for washing vegetables. She didn't want to raise a fox, still hadn't forgiven her sister for running away into the mountains of Sichuan. Her grievances with Popo were even more clear. She didn't want a child like her mother. In the end, it was Leah's mouth of baby teeth, perfect and pearled, that convinced Mama that she had a little girl. As Leah teethed new fangs, sickling the chairs into wishbones, and collapsing the sofa into little clouds. Mama prayed that the well-behaved fox spirit hadn't missed her, too. When Popo came for Leah's birth, she refused to speak to Mama, suckled Leah on chicken breast blended into milk, persimmons she dried in the garage. Those first weeks, she carried Leah on her hip like a new knife, sharpened her on the scent of severing meat from bone, then bone from bone, and taught her there's always marrow underneath. She credits the marrow for Leah's complexion, tells me to chew my bones if I want skin made of the same creamy light. Daddy left before I learned to walk. Mama said that he was a chicken, and we all know what foxes do to chickens, but I can imagine it better. Mama didn't tell him about her family until Leah was born. A howling pelt of rust and told him it wasn't permanent, of course not, until six years had passed and nothing had been subtracted from Leah, another one multiplying in Mama's belly. Leah said the only thing that she remembers was that he preferred to keep the TV on at all times, his face pouched in colored light. In his departure, ghosts unzipped the house. The TV exploded from heat, and the hot water pipe started whistling. Mama invited Popo to come swallow the spirits. It was cheaper to have her move in than to find new land or actually facing them. 
It was determined later that, though Leah was hungry, I was the pig. As I swelled in her womb, Mama ate whole watermelons, fish from cheek to tailbone, and cream cakes she didn't bother to slice. When I crawled out, she was relieved that I hadn't eaten her alive. At least you're not a fox, she said. By then Leah was six years old and knew the difference between girl and fox. I fell asleep with her feet kissing the shingles of the roof, sheets left shining by the open window, and in the morning she would be curled on the bed with me, tail tucked away, her pigtail smelling of wet cedar and fresh clay. She brought me gifts, though I didn't understand how strange they were, until I unwrapped a family of mice skulls at show and tell, their burrow flash frozen in the first snow, and my kindergarten teacher fainted. We were all quite proud of Leah being able to hunt. Mama never turned away her catches, kissing her forehead on inhale and yelling on exhale for me to come pluck the bird. After, she would hang the chicken from her knotted fist, dangling it like ripe fruit. If it was a fat one, she would braid its legs with twine and boil it for days in a cloud of ginger, green onion, and peppercorn. We watched over it like a snowstorm for it to seize on the first day, soften overnight into white and yielding flakes. Our favorite was when Mama parted the thighs, deemed them juicy enough for popcorn chicken. We ate them in a song of teeth-shattering crisp skin, swallowed faster than Mama could fry. This was when I learned first to fight Leah, shedding the soft skin on my hands for claws that hungered, too. Popo watched but never stopped us. Better learn early, she said. Popo instructed me to never be afraid of Leah, otherwise she would feast on this, too, swallowing it out of the air as greedily as dark meat or a doll's arm. I had seen the consequences once when she swallowed my Barbie. Leah's eyes rolled back white and keening, and Popo's nails became fish hooks, scooped her out like ripe cantaloupe. After that, Mama never forgot to rub the Barbies with mint cilantro again, and I never forgot that Leah looked like a chicken on the inside. With the doll's arms sweating in the sink, Popo knit her stomach back together, though she left the seams too tight. Leah ate like a bird after that. Mama switched to the day shift at the hospital, and Leah became my babysitter. Leah was a great babysitter. If I was hungry, which I always was, we walked to the gas station for red-hot potato chips. I could last longer than Leah, chewing the bottom of the bag even as the chili opened gashes in my throat. She took me to swim in the creek next to the motel, the only body of water in town not crowded with flotation devices and dog shit. The unfinished pool was healthy enough for fish, which Leah collected handfuls as easily as pennies. When it was too cold to swim, we visited hives that had crystallized underneath rotting panels of maple, made up dreams for the bees that slept, which ones married the queen, traveled kingdoms to set her free, or betrayed her, ensnared by her own tricks. They were always as elaborate as the wuxas Popo watched after dinner. After we visited the slumbering animals, I begged Leah to take me to the black bear that raided garages in the neighborhood, who had been caught on tape for its fondness of instant ramen. But Leah refused. One night she told me to listen for the gunshots, and I learned that they sound nothing like the movies. 
not a whole fist, just open and shut, a noise from the back of the tongue. Bears don't know to play dead, she said. Why do they have to, I said. It can save you, she said, and buried me in the soft spot between her ribs. Despite Leah's advice, I never played dead. The first time a boy shoved me into the monkey bars, my teeth fell out, a tiny concentration of roots still tinged with blood. No one had seen it happen, and everyone thought I should have punched back if I was in real pain. The next week, Leah was walking me home from school when someone held out their foot, stained my knees with twin tattoos. Before I looked at Leah, I was already down the street, lifting the boy's shirt with my hands. Not all of Leah's kills were clean. I had seen bone gleaming loose from fur, and did not want to confirm the same could be done to this boy. When the shadow of his piss spread a shadow across the sidewalk, I felt I had done something right, so I punched first this time, suturing his left eye purple. Only after did I turn and see Leah smiling. I would wake up for many years, those pits leaving holes in my breath. Still, I knew that Leah wasn't the monster in the house. She was the one who fetched bandages, held me screaming under the sink as Mama poured hydrogen peroxide on my knuckles. When the scars healed as thin as a blade, Leah showed me how to make a fist, how to seal my fingers to do the fracturing. Mama liked to ask me why I wasn't as happy as Leah. My sour plum, she said, gnawing at my cheeks. Leah was always smiling. You could play connect the dots with her dimples. I was a disagreeable child. My skull as hard as rocks, my will even more hopeless. Leah said it was true that once my cousin had striked my skull with a pool stick, I picked up the splinters and went after him, wielding them like chopsticks haunting shelled crab. Leah's smile used to unsettle me. I did everything I could to loosen her tear ducts, carving half-moons on her flesh with my nails, stealing sour-sweet ribs from her plate. Nothing could make her eyes water, so I settled for crying enough for both of us. Leah could see in the dark, her eyes so luminous you could drink it as warm chrysanthemum tea. I tried looking into the sun once to convince some light to honey my eyes, but they stayed plain as river stones. Still, I never faulted Leah for it. Her glow-in-the-dark gaze meant that she read to me longer than Mama did. We slept in the same room. I was supposed to take the top bunk, Leah the bottom, but we always slept together in one, spines lined crooked together. I told Leah that I had recurring nightmares, but the real reason was that Popo told too many ghost stories, and the shadows on the ceiling would inevitably be knit into the same horrors. I couldn't fall asleep without my arms around Leah's tail. It was a soft thing, the color of rust wrapping around a ring. The tip tapered into a downy white. I treasured its powers and lavished it in return in bubble baths and whispered secrets. Despite the myths and mangas of nine-tailed foxes, Leah had only one tail in real life. Every time she died, a new one would grow into place until there were no more. The stories were true, though, that whoever took Leah's tail could make her life belong to them, move her limbs as ruthlessly as we commanded our Barbies. It never seemed to be something that worried Leah. She would hand me her tail for safekeeping, scamper off into the woods with her friends. Even when I was young, I knew that Leah was dangerous and that this put her in danger, though I could never say from whom. 
The first time I followed Leah was after Mama threw her out the front door. Even for Mama, it was unusual. I was six, old enough to understand that the cursive Mama wrote on our backs with her belt could be hidden. Dignity couldn't. Leah still waved to Mrs. Goo, who turned her eyes down to her patch of wild chives. Leah's hands dropped, but still smiled to Peter, who had come like a good prince in his toad-colored Honda. They walked through the woods behind our cul-de-sac into an unfinished house. I knelt in the bushes, waiting for some sign that Leah had been mended. I had always suspected that Peter was her boyfriend, so I waited for her to emerge dewy with fresh kisses. I nearly fell asleep, woke to their laughter and smoke cuffing their hands. Then I saw Leah not covered in rust or pale skin, but all red as if everything had been turned inside out. The blood wrapped around her shoulders like a new bomber jacket, embroidery laced down the arms. That night I lifted her sleeves, my hands slick with sweat. Of all the skin I had seen, snake, deer, raccoon, even Popo's pockmarked ass, I had never seen Leah's. The lines crossed themselves, some webbed translucent, others detonated into sticky red knots. I told Popo the next morning. I know what it is. Leave her alone, she said. But I didn't listen and followed Leah around the house. What's wrong? She skins an orange for me, winding the peel around my wrist. Make a wish. It's one piece. I swallowed the orange segments. Tasted vinegar, not sun. Popo must have done the same as Leah once. She didn't even look and she knew. On Leah's 16th, we wreathe her in buttercream and eat ice cream cake until we paint the toilet in chocolate slush. Popo begins teaching Leah shape-shifting, something she had always done by accident. When she laughed too hard, her ears grew heavy, the lobes as soft as a dog's. Her hair turned red when we asked about her crushes, blood fizzing in each strand. Popo teaches her to draw borders around her skin, the same chalk-white sword circles staked against demons in Popo's wuxas. I pick up the powder, make the same seams. Whenever Leah can't take Popo's exercises anymore, I point out that I still had energy. Popo shakes her head. There's nothing I can reveal that wasn't already there. It's not a gift, Popo says. The garage peels open, Leah cursing. Mice are harder to catch than chickens. Besides, you can't keep a secret, she says. Foxes are made of them. Leah did learn to make bodies, even as her real one hadn't settled into the air, bruising on tight corners and door frames. No one could deny that she was a masterful architect, tugging and reassigning with ease cheekbones, hairline, moles, even the shape of her skull. She was limited by the faces she had seen before, so Popo took her to the supermarket and the ER waiting room instead of church. She warned Leah to never practice on anyone in the tabloids. Not real faces, she said. What's the hardest form to make, Popo asks us. Rich people, I say. Beauty, Leah says. Aging, Popo says, hurts more than plastic surgery. I don't believe her until Leah's skin raises and buckles like hot milk, went slack in Popo's hands. Stupid girl, Popo says. Wrinkles leave scars. She lays Leah on the ironing board, steams her with both fists, leaves her to dry in the sun with our duvets in the backyard. 
Mrs. Goo knocks, brings a bouquet of chives for soup. Women's pains, Popo says. They lean their heads together to pray. I saw Leah transform into someone I knew once. The phone rings and she takes it, smiles like she's made of something else. She has Aggie's laugh, too, curling above the ingrown hair on her lip, plastic pearls that double as rosary beads around her neck. They're meeting at the mall, Popo says. We both thought she was going to meet with Aggie, play two-for-one discount. I rehearse my lines on the bus ride. Let me tag along. I will be good and transparent. Leah never took me anywhere, preferred Peter or her friends who didn't know my name and called me little sister. At the mall, I look first in the ceramic store. It was Leah's favorite. She loved coaxing the clay into a rose in her palm, flattening it the next with one finger. There was something she loved about the fire, too, even as Popo warned her away from it. Foxes don't return from fire, she said. When I don't find her there, I dance around mannequins swirled in candy-colored lingerie, buttered pretzels, and haunches of fried chicken. Then I see Leah, my real Leah, with her pale skin and wide yellow eyes in the center of the food court. She's kissing someone, though kissing is not the right word. They had become one line, twisting like a match that understands its short life. I freeze watching Leah swallow not Peter, but Kara, whose little brother I'd punched, who came over for midnight card games, who bought me perfume with a sterling silver bow in exchange for spreading rumors about her boyfriend. I take the glass steps, two at a time. Do I know you? Leah says. I reach for her hand, but she's already hooked onto Kara, walking away. I pretend that their shadows pass through me without leaving a wound. At home, Popo tells me to whisper as she beats taro root into submission. The kitchen fills with its milky scent, lulling me. Maybe it wasn't Leah that I saw. Another fox? I open the door to our room, and Leah and Peter are watching TV, their ears tangled in one pair of headphones. They laugh and laugh when I tell them what I saw. Leah's been home, Peter says, and claps a hand to my shoulder. Want some candy? He grins. Blue taffy sweetening his gums. No one tells Mama, not in words. She knew when we threw our lunches away, when we stole eyeliner from her bathroom and returned it snapped in half. No one tattled, so she must have the ability to pull our secrets from the air like snow, sending the soft molecules spinning into crystal daggers. We wake to find the ground scabbed over in frost, and Mama flinging Leah's clothes into the garage. They arrive onto the hood of the car in a syncopation of dust, swaddle the tires and shovels with jeans, legs stiff in the air as if a ghost wears them. When she reaches the back of her closet, she finds Leah's box of makeup, using both hands to lift it. Leah sits in the hallway, barely watching, doesn't even flinch when Mama drops the box at her feet. It falls with a muffled crack, an egg drowning in its thin armor. Stop crying, Mama says. She kicks an eyeshadow palette as she walks out of the kitchen, casts gunmetal and quartz into the air. The only sound after that was the cold air, smelling of rust, of coming snow. We spend the next few days swallowing without chewing, our tongues drying out. Mama won't speak to her until she ends things with Kara, 
Leah won't look at us, not even a glance at Popo, who brings her rice and pickled radishes. Then later, steamed egg and tiny dried shrimp. I tell her Leah's not sick, and she shakes her head. Isn't that what a breakup is? Leah tells Mama that they've broken up, that she told Kara to never come back. Her voice emerges from a small grave. You're a liar, my mother says. How do I know if you actually did it? In the morning, I understand that there's a point where pain can no longer be turned inwards. Leah? Mama's voice hitches onto the corners of Leah's empty drawers. She didn't say bye to me either, I tell her. The dawn piles in light, flushes the room to the rim with plum, bruising my mother's pale eyes. She heaves the mattress onto its stomach, makes a wound in the center, tries to find a vein, a pulse, but there are only feathers caught in the air between our teeth. The floor is flooded with Leah, river stones too precious to skip, a fraction of dried honeycomb, sketchbooks I never knew she kept. Mama curls onto the floor, her body proof that it is possible to drown in your own body. Mama unlocks the doors and sleeps on the ground. Good for the bones, she says, and I try to believe her, that she isn't burying herself early. Popo wanders outside to feed the birds, even the raccoons. She leaves oranges unwrapped like flowers, pancakes fried in duck fat. I don't ask if our doorstep is an altar prepared for her return or a trap laid with her favorite foods. At night, I leave my window open. The curtain swells, wrapping around the ledge to make new ghosts each night. Mama calls Daddy when she thinks I'm asleep, tells him Leah likes girls because he left us. I see Leah one last time. I'm waiting for Mama and Popo to come home from the grocery store when another car spins into the driveway. Candy apple sobs sweet enough to bite. Mama walks out of the garage, her back to the window where I watch. Kara, this is a surprise, she says. Leah wouldn't end it like this, Kara says. She laces her hands first behind her waist, then tucks them between her armpits. She looks like a chicken about to be plucked, and I pity her for trying to give words to Mama. Mama shuts the trunk, spine crumpling a little, says, I... She didn't want to hurt you like this. Fine, Kara says. She unbuttons her jacket, and Leah's tail sways from her fist. She can have her leash back. Mama watches as Kara unlocks her car, holding the tail in her hands as if it weighed of stone, not fur. Kara rolls down her window as if she's about to ask a question, but spits at the ground at Mama's feet. When Mama turns around, she's crying. Her cheeks are glossy, slick with salt that she laps up, hiccuping. She nears the driveway light, and suddenly I see how it was all a shell. Mama's bones soften into Leah's frame. Her skin knits into light. When I open the door, Leah's already crossed the shadows. She leaves me with one of my own, her tail rustling on the altar. This is the one secret I have kept. I bring the tail to school fold it into my binders, wrap it in the clothes I shed, still warm, before swimming in the creek. I buy a pillowcase for it, hold it close as a charm. On Leah's birthday, I go to the ceramic store and make clay mugs. They were only mud the day before, scored with scars. I leave the four of them on the counter, 
stone melted into shining bone. I don't hear her follow me on the trail, but she's three paces away. Close enough to stop me, to take the tail and command it as a sword for Leah to come home. Mama watches as I burn Leah's tail. Not all the threads of red have been caught, but she makes no move, her hand silent. You didn't tell me she gave it to you, she says. Mama, I try to say, but something has buried my voice. She touches my cheek, her fingers warmer than tears. Through the smoke, the tail looks like a wing. That's what I want to believe. Not one like the hawks or vultures following Leah to school in a lonely arc of sky. It looks carved of marble, trembling in the flames, still alive. The darkness closes and opens its aching jaws, swallowing her white hot bones.
That was Low Fills with Buzzard Bait. On this one was published at Jellyfish Review, excerpt from the history of clocks. After my grandmother, Boo Boo, buried Akong, we expected her to pack a suitcase with pineapple cakes and Costco gift cards, faxing us the itinerary for her flight. Mama paid me and my sister one quarter to bouquet the cobwebs in the guest room, until they were as thick as cotton candy. We thought Boo-Boo might be lonely staying, but Mama told us to catch all the stuffed animals, snare their squeaking hearts in garbage bags. We beach them on the sidewalk, where Dana Ayi picks them up. Dana Ayi lives in the house joined at the hip to ours. Sometimes their vegetable peels color our water, carrot, and tomato. Mama pays me and my sister two more quarters to teach Dana Ayi's twins how to play girl with flaxen hair. We only have time for the right hand before Mama says huichala, pulling the spare slippers from our feet. Dana Ayi pushes a basket of chocolates and a jumbo pack of Slim Jims into Mama's arms. They embrace, violent and loving as claiming the check at Yum Cha. Mama doesn't even have time to tell her that our Costco receipts must have been twins, the chocolate and jerky are already shrined on our basement ping-pong table, before Dana Ayi closes the door, the twins slurring flats where there should be sharps. When Boo-Boo comes, only Dana Ayi's house is lit on the whole street, their living room glowing with the twins playing on a baby grand the church retired. My grandmother asks where the streetlights are Bao Bay, and my sister points to the Christmas tinsel snaking around the evergreen, their leaves splintering yellow toothpicks. While Boo-Boo is in the shower, Mama goes over the rules. If Boo-Boo feeds us anything, we must expand our stomach. If that is not possible, we can leave at most two bites and beg her forgiveness for weak intestines passed down from our father. If Boo-Boo wants to watch Nirvana on fire, we cannot complain she left us behind. Mama says this is a game starting now. We understand this is a game with no winners or quarters. Boo-Boo does the laundry now, cleaning our pockets of sandwich-shaped erasers and mood rings that coin a color. She asks to borrow a pencil, and we watch her draw a clock onto the last pages of Mama's legal pad. Her handwriting is worse than Mama's, 
matchsticks falling over the lines, numbers growing tumors where our teachers have told us to cut them out. Bubu says if she doesn't remember the numbers or the minute hand of the clock, we must teach her how to do it. And so we begin this game secret from Mama. The clock in our living room is of no help. Our father bought it at SeaWorld, a school of dolphins that chimes silver on the hour. Neither our father nor the batteries can be found, even at Costco. So the dolphins swim silently through 1231, morning and night. The clock in the kitchen cheats. It has no hands, only pills of chubby green light. While Boo-Boo draws the hands of clocks, my sister and I draw a body, passing the paper like a thinning goose underneath the dining table. I add teeth, but not too many, because I don't want them to suffer as I have when Mama handcuffed my molars to the doorknob. My sister draws two pigtails, and I correct them into circles. Nurcha, not Princess Leah cinnamon buns. Today, Boo-Boo takes longer than usual making time and does not ask us to check her work. We run out of body parts to add. Is it possible to forget an organ and be a body, we ask Boo-Boo? She points to the corners of her left eye, where I've always believed she was stabbed with a mechanical pencil. I am missing a tear duct, she says, missing half my tears, half the water I was supposed to shed for your Akong's death. We tell her Mama cried. Cried enough in the shower to hog all the warm tomato water. Boo-Boo touches the hole on her face, and we wait for her tears, a quarter of salt. The dolphins spin, the oven humming a green time just out of view.
that was Low Fills with Our Things. I guess it's time for a little mise. On on the menu today is a snack size interview with our featured musicians, Low Fills. Low Fills perform original songs for weirdos and circus ghosts. Fast and rocking, slow and haunted. Some songs float and shimmer, some get down and groove, and some stagger around like a drunken carny. All of our songs feature the soaring, sizzling, slinky sounds of Joe Burke's lap steel. Singer-songwriter Laura Gillis plays a big, beautiful, dusty Gretsch. Phil Marvey plays a mean, mean bass, but he himself is very nice indeed. And sludge titan Harper Quee makes the drums sing. Usually we play in bars, but sometimes we play in laundromats or bookstores, near horses, in boxing rings, on public transit, at comedy shows, or at house parties, street parties, or festivals. We've been creating music together since 2015. And the Lowfills were kind enough to answer a few questions for the Violet Hour, which I'm happy to share with you now. One, what is your earliest memory of winter? Laura's is the smell and taste of snow in tunnels by the light of incandescent Christmas bulbs. Two, if you had to assign a tree or other plant to each band member, who would be what and why? Eljo Lapsteel would be a pineapple tree because his house is full of pineapples. They must come from somewhere, right? Phil base would be a red maple because of his red beard and because he's frequently sighted with children climbing on him. Harper, drums, would be a white pine tree because their needles are like drum brushes. And Laura, voice and guitar, is torn as to whether she is more of a cedar or a weeping willow, depending on if she is feeling tenacious and tough or flowing and graceful. 3. What is your songwriting process and creative practice like? Usually Laura writes a song, or Joe brings a riff, or Phil writes a twisty, turny chord progression, or perhaps some more colorful lyrics in his shower. Then we start playing it together. We do this for a very long time to let it evolve and find out what it needs to say. Sometimes we forget it for a while, and then it resurrects itself. Eventually we don't forget it anymore, and it knows exactly what to do. Then it's done. Four. What are your five favorite words associated with cactus? Ouch. Sunglasses. Waving. Needles. Dancing. With buzzard. Gliding. Watching. Hot. Sun. Carcass. With moon. Good night. Blue. Light. Face, beauty. Five. If the low fills were to bury a time capsule today, what would you use for a container? What would you put in it? Where would you bury it? And what instructions would you leave regarding its opening in the future? The container will be a marching bass drum. We will fill it with various small, unusual objects that serve no current purpose except for to be picked up and looked at now and again. Over time, while buried, they will acquire meaning and magical powers. It will be buried in a secret forest clearing, 
and we will make a map that is beautifully illustrated but useless for finding the capsule. It will be slipped into the Toronto Reference Library book, Cornelius Papadou, a Samoyed Amharic lexicon of squid rearing, copyright 1947, University of Jakotananga Press, which is stored in a never-before-seen basement corner. The instructions for opening the capsule are as follows. Who brings this drum to the light of day must say boom, boom, ra ti ray and thump on the skin and jump on a bone and then away open you may. Just jump on the bone and thump on the skin. Bang, boom, boom, ra ti ray unless it's all eroded away. Eroded away as all in time will erot away. Boom, boom, ra ti ray Boom, boom, ra ti ray Bonus, if you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? Laura would definitely be a floppy-eared bunny. Everyone else are teddy bear types, like Mr. Bear. Well, thank you so much, Lothals, for sharing your thoughts and your music and the Violet Hour. And you can find out more about the Lofils. They're based in Toronto. And you can check out their music and buy their album on Bandcamp at glowfills.bandcamp.com. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. It's me, Mr. Bear. Miss Mousy, uh, you're you're standing on your head. Oh, oh, hey, Mr. Bear. Yeah, I'm I'm doing a headstand. Hold hold on. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was it's so exhilarating. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, a headstand. Um, I don't I don't know if I can do a headstand. Well, I I couldn't do a headstand until recently, Mr. Bear. Um, but you know, it's um, it's a wonderful to have a movement goal to work toward, and I I picked headstand. Uh huh. Maybe maybe I'll try one. How how how'd you get started? Well, um, you start like this, and you you put your head down on the floor, and then with your paws back kind of under your shoulders, you make like a triangle uh, with with your head and your paws. And then you lift your knees up onto your elbows and balance them there. Good job, Mr. Bear. And then, uh, 
Yeah, and then you lift your feet off the ground, and that's called tripod pose. Oh, I'm, I'm doing it. Yeah, that's, that's tripod. Good job, Mr. Bear. Um, and then you lift your legs straight up into the air from there. Oh, yeah, I, I can't do that. Now, it's, it can be pretty hard. Um, it's easier to start against a wall. So, you know, you can practice tripod for a while and practice against a wall. And then you can uh, lift your legs against the wall. And then uh, that's the point where I'm at. Uh, and, and next I'm going to work on, on being able to do it without a wall. So that's, that's my goal. Wow, uh, well, that's really inspiring, uh, Miss Mousy. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe someday I'll do, I'll do a full headstand too. Yeah, and then there's handstands. That's on my list too. But uh, anyway, it's you know, spring is coming, and uh, just you know, it's good to to move the move your body in in whatever way you can move it. Um, it doesn't have to be big fancy movement and doesn't have to be headstands or handstands and you know it's um just working with what you got and 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 moving 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 uh yeah uh mo- moving's good and i really love uh katie bowman's work nutritiousmovement.com uh you know if you go there there's lots of ideas and inspiration and information and you know and you just you start wherever you are i mean i'm not a physical therapist or biomechanical engineer or uh you know uh i'm i'm just learning about human anatomy to be honest with you mr bear yeah, me too. I really, uh, I barely know anything about bear anatomy, let alone human anatomy. I know, right? Um, you know, mouse anatomy. What's that? You'd think I'm, you'd think I'd know being a mouse, but you know, um, you'd be surprised how many humans don't know that much about human anatomy. So I don't think we need to feel too bad, Mister Bear. <laughs> and you know. As as you know, I'm a two-dimensional hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, so your listeners, you know, should do their own homework and research, but, uh, you know, I hope they'll be inspired to uh, maybe try a, a handstand or a headstand or just, you know, try, try moving in a new way. Um, I mean... Not everybody uh, can do a headstand or a handstand or, um, you know, I mean, not everybody can walk or get out of bed. And I mean, so I don't want, um, I don't want to make anybody feel bad. Um, I just want um, folks to feel inspired to uh, set some kind of little goal uh, in movement uh, from where wherever they're starting from. Uh, to be able to to move something in in a new way. Um, so anyway, um, I do have uh, this uh, I think uh, delicious uh, tea to help you know get the blood moving in spring. Um, yeah, I call it my uh, spring blood mover tea. That's not a very um, appealing name. 
Oh, well, I mean, you know, if you want to get your blood moving, uh, but it's it's not a sexy name, if that's what you mean. Yeah, it's not, you know, very clickbaity or like, oh, someone would want to make that. But that's okay, um, you know, because we're not about clickbaiting here in Miss Mousy's Apothecarium or Mr. Bear's Violet Hour, are we, Mr. Bear? Oh, no, uh, I don't think there's too much clickbaiting going on around here. Uh, but you know, for for folks listening, um, they they might want to try making making your tea. Oh no, I'd like to try some. Well, yeah. Um. Well, this is a decoction, and and that means you throw everything in the pot with the water to start and bring it up to a boil, and then turn it down and simmer it for a long time. And we do that with things like. Uh, roots and bark and, you know, kind of tougher, woodier things that, that take longer to, to let, um, to draw out their constituents. So in, in this one I made, there's dandelion root, burdock root, reishi, ashwagandha, codonopsis, sassafras, sarsaparilla, hawthorn berry, and a little cardamom and pine. Uh, I do love gathering fresh pine, um, and if you have any pine trees around you, um, after it's been windy or a storm, um, sometimes you just find the branches on the ground, that's how I get them, and it's just a little gift from the pine tree, and then you have fresh pine needles. Uh, yeah, I, I love I love pine needles and pine trees and uh, pine resin and everything about pine trees. Uh, and, you know, actually, uh, Miss Mousy, uh, I think one of my movement goals uh, for the year is to try and climb a tree. Uh, by the end of the year, uh, I want to climb a tree. And I've heard that, that pine trees, once once you get started on them, you know, you, you get up, that then the branches are, are spaced uh, are spaced pretty good for climbing. So, uh, I don't know, I'm... I mean, I'm I'm a bear. Maybe I should know more about tree climbing, but um, uh, I have to admit I've been kind of a a, a bear that likes to stay um, firmly rooted on the ground or on a bicycle, but not up in trees and not on the water. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean, Mister Bear. Um, but I think that's a great uh, goal, a tree climbing goal. So, um, you know, maybe I'll do that with you. All that that would be great, uh, Miss Mousy. Um, so anyway, um, just throw all those things I said. I'll say them again if anyone's actually taking notes. Uh, dandelion root, burdock root, ashwagandha root, codonopsis, reishi, sassafras, sarsaparilla, hawthorn berry, some crushed cardamom pods, and pine needles with a few of the little twigs. And, uh, yeah, just cover those with water in a pot, bring them to a boil, simmer like an hour, strain it out. You can add a little honey if you like, and, um, it's a, it's a delicious beverage, uh, hot or cold. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the sassafras and sarsaparilla have a pretty strong taste, so you get a little bit of that root beer kind of taste coming through, um, but... Anyway, that's what I've that's what I've got, Mister Bear. Um, uh, brewing right now on the stove. So uh, stick around, and uh, I'll, I'll pour you a cup. Oh, uh, 
great. Um, well, I'll, how about I come back for that, Miss Mousy? Because I should, I should wrap up, up the show. Oh, yeah, I don't want to keep you from that. But, you know, come back later for a cup. And, oh, my gosh, I just, I just love the work of Star Sue. Uh, just, wow, really, really beautiful stuff. Um, and those low fills, they're a real hoot, aren't they? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan, uh, of, of Starsu and Lofils, um, that's, you know, why I'm doing a show on them. <laughs> oh, Mr. Bear. Okay, um, well, you go finish up the show, and, um, uh, I'm gonna go do another headstand. Okay, I'll see you later, Miss Mousy. Bye, Mr. Bear. <laughs> That was Low Fills with Beat That. And that's the show. I hope you enjoyed the work of Star Sue as much as I enjoyed sharing it with you. And you can find out more about Star Sue and read lots more of her gorgeous writing at her website, starcsu.com. But uh, before you go, I'll leave you with a Parting Oracle, uh, Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High, number 74, The Perfect Girl, Robin Will Do Anything to Keep George. Uh, you know how the oracle works. I will paw through this book, randomly point down at a section, and read you your oracle. Okay, okay. Annie didn't want Robin to get any more upset than she already was. Well, that's your oracle. Do with it what you will. All right. Uh, thanks so much for spending a little time with me in the Violet Hour. 
I will be back with you on the new moon. Until then, take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.